0: Um, first, I would like to say that uh, last week I had a cold, and I th- I'm still dealing with the effects of my voice. So, give me a little mercy, grace. Um, also, I want to start by because I have the mic and I have the opportunity. Um, I uh, am honored and blessed and very thankful. To Randy for giving me the opportunity to come into this lovely family, a King of Kings, and to have the opportunity to preach God's Word to all of you, to learn uh, with you, and I am thankful for Randy's leadership and his uh, care for me. Been a great mentor and a great friend to me, and I just wanted to give my peace And now a little foreword to our message today. Um, This worship service that we partake in from week to week, I want to say something about its meaningfulness and its relevance to us in our lives. The liturgy, the work of the people, the the steps, the process that we go through every Sunday is laid out in two main acts, the service of the word and the service of the table. Now, the service of the Word is us setting ourselves in this place in the beginning to hear from God's Word, the eternal Word that uh, speaks to us in order to take over our lives. And then the service of the table, we then turn to this table to where we give credence and remembrance to this spiritual significance of Christ's body and Christ's blood. Both of these activities, this full system of liturgy, sets us in a particular posture to receive from God. And the main goal and the, the the telos, the, the end result of our coming is to be transformed by Him. And you see this posture that we take is called something. It's called worship. The posture that we take is called worship. Each step in our liturgy that we do, the two main parts and then each little part in between that guides us is all worship. And like I said, that worship is that transformation of our souls. Like Paul says in Romans 12, worship is your spiritual work. And then right after that he says, so be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I just want to encourage us. Um, Like Paul says, he, he says, sometimes I don't need to remind you of the love that you have for people. I believe that we are a worshiping people and I don't need to remind us of that. But as Peter says, as long as we are in this body of flesh, it is good for me to remind you of that which we do. And so as we hear from this word, as we then move and partake of this table, let's remember what kind of posture we're taking. It is a posture of transformation for our souls and our bodies. And today's message is one of those that will be able to put us in a place to see the full range of God's gospel Working out in Scripture. As someone fairly new to the ways of the lectionary, um, the gathering of the Old Testament Scriptures coupled with the New Testament Scriptures on a really genius level, it spells out that this whole Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures to the New Testament Scriptures, speak of really one thing. And that's what we're going to get into today. And our message... For us today is what we'll see. And I'm going to speak of three kinds of progresses. We're going to look at who, and we're going to look at why, and we're going to look at what. So what? What, it, what does that mean? And the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures today for us, and the gospel reading today for us, set us up fairly well to hear this grand story of God and his redeeming mission. So we heard in Zechariah, right, the announcement of Zion's king, this messianic universal peacemaker. He was going to come in in a particular fashion. And he, he chose to write in on a donkey. Now, there's arguments on whether or not he actually rode in on the foal because of the accounts in the gospel. But however it be, a donkey or if there was a foal riding right alongside him, it said something significant. Because in the, in the Old Testament times, in the times of the Bible, during Jesus' time as well, the way that a king would enter into the city said something about what kind of king he was going to be. And it said something of what kind of rules, what kind of overarching system this king was going to put into, pra- into practice. It was going to tell the people of what kind of society they could look to be living in under this king. And so... If a king chose to, if a king was going to look to be this warrior king, this mighty, dominant, overpowering king, somebody that you are definitely going to have to look up to, perhaps a king that was going to set the war machine on pace and get the army ready and really show everyone who's boss. He would probably choose to ride in on a war horse covered in armor. And this would say something about what kind of king he would be. But if a king would say ride in on a donkey, it would say something else. It would say perhaps something like peace is at hand, gentleness is at hand. And indeed, that's what Zechariah says, right? Right? I'm going to pro- proclaim peace to all the nations. Even though our presidents uh, and leaders around the globe aren't riding animals into their workplace anymore, which would be a funny sight, um, we, can get the, we can get the picture. Right, We get the ideas of this image. A, a giant war horse... Probably a black horse, right? Right. Covered in armor, strong and huge, mighty. It's not subtle in the ways of indirect communication, right? It is not subtle at all. It screams with overt pride, I am a bad man on the battlefield, and I am ruthless in the ways of leading. It would say something like, yes, my rules may be heavy, But if you abide by them, it's all going to be okay with you. It says something else like, uh, Fear me, work for me, and you'll prosper. This first type of king evokes fear to be respected. But the second way of entering a city would say something else. A gentle, young, not of working class, donkey, a foal. It would say something like, I am humble, gentle, and peaceable. It would say something like, I am with you. I will work for you. And all will be okay. might say something like, I love you. You're my people. And therefore, everything will be okay. You see... This type of leader uses and evokes love to generate respect. This type of leader makes it pretty easy to follow. See, our Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah speaks of this second type of king. And we believe that this king has come. All four of the gospel books tell the story of this king entering Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey, and one of those, one of those accounts, Matthew's, Matthew's account in Matthew 21, says that this is a direct interpretation or a direct fulfillment of the prophecy by Zechariah. If you want to, you can go to Matthew 21, and we can read this together. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. You see, the subject of today's story, the who of this first question we're asking is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. And whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, today's message, next week's message, all of the messages that this Bible will speak of, there is one who. And that who is Jesus. A scholar and theologian I like, he says that Jesus is not just a part of his own good news. He is the key factor. Gospel, Jesus, inseparable. But why is this significant for us? For all of humanity, why is it key for Jesus to come as king? And so now we get to progress to our Romans passage. Paul, throughout the letter of Romans, is articulating the theological and existential problem that we humans face. Paul faced it. And his solution to the problem is none other than the who that we just discovered. Jesus. Jesus and his Holy Spirit and the work they accomplish on our behalf is the why of this. So if we go to Romans, where we were, Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at this again, and we're going to see why we needed a king. So I find it to be a law when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members in my body... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And Paul, in poetic fashion, screams out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? You hear that? Who will deliver me? From this body of death. Then he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the problem Paul is pointing out in this first part of the section that we just read is the troublesome reality of two kings trying to claim allegiance over our body. Right before this part in Romans 7, he goes through this really weird statement. I want to do good, but I can't do good. Every time that I try to do good, I find myself not doing good, but I want to do good, but I can't, and I'm just really confused. He gets confused, like anybody does, if there is two lords trying to dictate what they are going to do. Anybody had uh, at work two people who thought they were your boss? One was your real boss, but there's another one who's not your boss, but really wants to be your boss, and so he acts like your boss. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I, I'm confused. I don't know who's my boss. <laughs> it was like that TV show, who's the boss? <laughs> you know, it's confusing, and Paul's confused, and he has a passion for God's law in his mind, but his, his body doesn't seem to be doing what his mind wants to do. There is a problem of two kings. And so I, I, I kind of emphasized law when I was reading that. And here's why. Because a law or laws are the arm and power of a king. A king creates laws so that when... Um, it, it's for society, right? It's to build and to protect and to do all these things. And laws are good, and Paul says that. But when, a, but when we are incapable of following the law it becomes very injustice-like to live under those rules, under those sets of laws. Because since the law belongs to the king, it is the king's prerogative and his right. It's actually the king's duty to punish you according to the law, to condemn you according to that law. But like I said, when When we're destined to fail and the king knows it, but yet he keeps that law intact, that's injustice. It's really injustice. So Paul is pointing out that the law of sin is utterly horrible. And and because we are automatically destined to death because it is impossible for us to keep the law. And so therefore we are condemned. And this would cause any of us, right? But Paul screams out, who will save me from this horrible situation, this body of death? I am destined to die. Who will save me from this? And that's the cue for us, right? We found our answer. The answer is Jesus. Jesus. And he continues in chapter 8. and He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of spirit, from the law of sin and death. You see that we are now no longer confused about our situation. We know who our rightful king is, the one who has set a law on us. But it's not a law of do good, do good, do good, do good. It's a law of grace. So at this point, it might be helpful to ask the question of how. So I'm going to insert a how. So we've done who, we've done what, the trouble of two kings, and uh, how. How does he set us free? And there is one key way that we are freed from tyranny of that wicked, false king, and that's through death. We're like, what? I thought we just like sidestepped death, you know, like the king came and we no longer die. Well, that's right, but death is still the answer. Uh, If you turn to Romans uh, 6, Paul is going to tell us exactly how death is the key to our freedom. Chapter chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And here's the kicker. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We are buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we know that we will also be united in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Our old self under the rule of sin might be brought to nothing. And so that we are no longer to be enslaved by sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Dominion is a kingly term. Death no longer has a dominion over him. For death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to Christ and Jesus. See, death is the answer. But it's not yours and mine, death. It's Jesus' death. And through faith, we are placed in his death and then raised to new life so that we might live under the law of grace and not under the law of sin and death. Jesus has just become our king by breaking the power of death. Dominion no longer has hold. Paul continues in a very, very practical note in in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign. He is a bad king and he actually has no power now. He only wants to bring you to death. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death over to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. There's that dominion word again, right? You are no longer under the king, that fake, horrible, false king of sin since you are not under law but what grace so this is describing a transfer of two main things we are transferred in ownership here paul he said you are no longer slaves to that slave master one who wants to bring you to death we have a new slave master who is gentle and gives us life. And it also is describing a transfer of citizenship. We are being transferred into a new kingdom, one where grace is the law of the land, one where forgiveness is the way that we operate and the way that we work. Jesus knew, Paul knew, that to live under the reign of sin and the reign of the law of sin, it would be impossible to keep and we'd go straight to death. But instead, we get to present ourselves to a new king, he says. One whose law is grace and we're, keeps, we're kept safe by the gentle king, Jesus, the one who rode in on a, on a colt, not a war horse. We're, re, we're free to work righteously all of those righteous works that he prepared for us to do in his kingdom. We're now free to do them without judgment, without condemnation, without fear of failing because we know that the law of the land is grace. That's what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So these are the answers to who, why, and how. How? Why did we need a new king? Because we had this horrible slave owner, driver, bad king that only sent us straight to death. We are on our way to an eternal grave. But Jesus, the king who rode in on a gentle colt, has made it so that we can live in his kingdom, under his grace, not under law. And he died our death to make it possible to be united with him in baptism through faith. So what? So what? Our final question asks what? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for you and I to have a new king today? To be free from the tyranny of sin. Have you ever received an invitation? Any kind of invitation, but this invitation changed your life completely changed your life maybe you knew what was going to happen and you wanted to receive an invitation and you received it and your life has never been the same maybe you didn't know about it and it was a surprise to you and you heard this invitation and you went and this thing this event this whatever it was changed your life forever can you imagine an invitation like that? Matthew 11:25 our gospel reading so we're coming full circle right we had our old testament we had our romans and now we're in our gospel. You can turn there Matthew 11 again if you want. Matthew 11:25 Guess what? The, the Father is choosing to reveal him to you today. Okay. And then he says this the invitation that I was just having you imagine. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, cult image. That little donkey image. I am gentle and lowly at heart. I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tells us that it was his father's gracious will that brought him to earth to become king over all things. It was his gracious will that he provided King Jesus to free us from the double-minded desire for God and for sin. He knows that it was constantly hounding men. sin. It's constantly hounding men and women. It's beating them up. It's torturing their souls. Paul screamed out. His soul was being tortured. He knows that all of these people all of us you and i are tired of this double minded back and forthness this confusing problem of having two bosses he knows that we need rest and this is the invitation to us he invites us you and me he invites us to live under his rule of grace And not under law. His easy and light yoke. In this context, a yoke uh, is the overarching way of life. The yoke of sin and death is tiresome. Why else would we need rest? We're constantly striving. Sin tells us, that we have to prove ourselves. Sin tells us to focus inward, to say, am I good enough? Am I, am I, am I? What am I wanting? What do I need? What can I get for myself? How do I provide for myself? All those things are focused inward, and it's tiresome. But Jesus' yoke his rule, his way of life, and his kingdom is easy. It's light. Because it's a law of grace and forgiveness and mercy. Yes, in his kingdom, we no longer strive for acceptance. We don't need to prove ourselves. We do not need to lie to protect ourselves. We do not need to um, work harder and harder for larger and larger bank accounts in order to feel secure for ourselves. We do not need perfect homes. We do not need perfect jobs. And we do not need perfect families in order to set ourselves up in society in the right way or to feel good about ourselves. Uh, And His kingdom, we're full of the joy of Christ. It surpasses all things. His peace transpasses all understanding and that's what he's given to us today. And the great thing about this gospel presentation and I'm drawing it to a close with this is that it doesn't matter where you're at in the faith spectrum. This invitation is open-ended and always present. If you've been with the Lord for years and years and years or if you're only beginning to think about what faith in Christ might look like. This invitation is for you. All of us continue to strive in this body of flesh. And we all grow weary at times. And this is the invitation for all of us. Do you struggle to keep up with law-keeping? The endless striving of gaining approval, keeping up appearances, battling sin. Who will save us from this body of death? Jesus says, come to me, all who weary are laden. Take my yoke upon you. Live under my kingdom, in my kingdom and under my rule, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I have the spirit of life, and I give it to you freely. He says that that spirit that I give to you freely will lead you into all truth. And then he says, I will give you rest for your souls. Will you accept this invitation? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.